Israel and Hamas are considering extending the pause in fighting and releasing more people with that pause set to end later today. It's Monday, November 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, an annual climate summit gets underway in Dubai amid questions of whether the conference is producing any results. Also this hour, Massachusetts researchers are trying to figure out why some striped bass that usually leave for warmer waters each year are staying put. It's not uncommon to have striped bass year-round in places, but typically they're landlocked. These fish aren't landlocked, they have a choice. And research shows teenagers benefit from starting school later, but it's not always easy to change when classes start. In sports, Celtics win, Patriots lose, mostly sunny in the 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The militant group Hamas is seeking an extension of the four-day pause in hostilities with Israel. Today is the last day. Hamas has released 58 hostages. Israel has released 117 Palestinian prisoners. Both sides are supposed to release more today. Meanwhile, members of the Bibas family are in Tel Aviv, hoping for word of their kidnapped relatives. Yair Keshet says that includes two very young children. We don't know anything. The only thing we hope is for them to be, to be here, back. Among the hostages that Hamas is still holding are approximately nine Americans. The owner of the social media company X, formerly known as Twitter, will meet today with Israeli President Isaac Herzog. NPR's Dave Mistich has more on Elon Musk's visit. Herzog will be joined by family members of Israelis held hostage by Hamas. They're expected to speak to Musk about the October 7th attack on Israel and emphasize the need to combat rising anti-Semitism online. X, formerly known as Twitter, has been accused of amplifying anti-Semitic messages, leading major companies like Apple and Disney to drop advertising on the site. NPR's Dave Mistich reporting. The FBI is investigating the shooting of three college students in Vermont over the weekend. The victims are of Palestinian descent. Police in Burlington say they've arrested a suspect. Jason Eaton is expected to make his first court appearance today. Vermont Public's Brittany Patterson has more on the weekend attack. Authorities say the three 20-year-old college students were visiting one victim's relative over the Thanksgiving break. On Saturday night, the men were walking down a residential street, two of them wearing kafiyas, the traditional Palestinian scarf, when authorities say they were confronted by a white man with a handgun. Police stress the investigation is ongoing. They say the man did not speak before opening fire and his motive is unknown. Authorities say the attack may have been a hate crime. For NPR News, I'm Brittany Patterson in Burlington, Vermont. President Biden is announcing fresh actions today to strengthen the nation's supply chains for goods. Biden is convening the first meeting of a White House supply chain council. Slowdowns in the nation's supply chain lead to higher prices for consumers. The White House also says the president is going to turn to the Defense Production Act to help alleviate drug shortages. The action is intended to help U.S. manufacturers produce more essential medicines in the United States. The family of former First Lady Rosalind Carter is opening three days of memorials for her. Today, Mrs. Carter, the wife of former President Jimmy Carter, will be honored in ceremonies in her home county in Georgia. This evening, Mrs. Carter's body will lie in repose in the Carter Presidential Library and Museum. Guests are invited to pay respects there. You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston.
Members of Governor Healy's cabinet are pushing lawmakers to approve emergency funding for the family shelter system. That system hit a self-imposed cap earlier this month. That's sent families in need of shelter to a waiting list. House and Senate lawmakers approved their own versions of $250 million in emergency funding but haven't reached a compromise deal. State Housing Secretary Ed Augustus told WCVB's on the record that the demand for shelter hasn't eased. We have 40 to 50 families arriving every day, uh, and we're doing the best we can to triage those that arrive, uh, those that are particularly vulnerable. We have kind of capacity for them. Others are placed placed on the wait list, uh, and as soon as we can exit families from the system, we can bring them in off the wait list. Augustus says some of the overflow sites to handle some families should be set up in the next few days. Rural areas of the U.S. grew during the pandemic, including some in New England. As Sarah Gibson reports, this trend reverses some of the population loss in the last decade. Ken Johnson, a demographer at the University of New Hampshire, crunched the numbers from the latest census data. His findings confirm what many noticed anecdotally, that between 2020 and 2022, rural areas known for their recreational and retirement communities grew substantially. Johnson says with this population change comes new demands. Certainly in the retirement counties, there's going to be a significant influx of older people into the counties which would increase the demands on the health care system. Many rural health care facilities, including in New England, are already facing financial pressures and worker shortages. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. The city of Cambridge is considering banning gas-powered leaf blowers. Supporters of the ban say they damage the environment and public health. They want to begin banning the equipment in 2025. The city will begin taking feedback today from residents and landscapers. Gas-powered leaf blowers are also banned in Dedham, Lexington, and Arlington. A Boston man faces multiple counts of destruction of property for a string of vandalism over the weekend. Police say the 46-year-old is responsible for damaging the city's Holocaust memorial and the graves of Paul Revere and other historic Bostonians. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter, online at nutter.com. And Acton Art Drawing School, celebrating 20 years teaching drawing, painting, and manga in Acton, Mass., to kids, teens, and adults, actonart.com. The Celtics beat the Atlanta Hawks 113-103 to last night at the Garden. The Seas will host the Chicago Bulls tomorrow. The Patriots lost their third straight game yesterday, falling to the Giants 10-7 to in New Jersey. Tonight, the Bruins will visit the Columbus Blue Jackets. It'll be mostly sunny today and in the mid-50s, clear overnight and in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow near 40. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. This is the last day of the four-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas after three rounds of hostage-prisoner exchanges that began on Friday. Another exchange is expected later today, but both sides say they're open to more releases and a longer ceasefire. 
NPR's Daniel Estrin is with us now from Tel Aviv with more. Good morning from Washington, D.C., Daniel. Good morning from Tel Aviv, Michelle. So this process started on Friday. Would you bring us up to date with where we are now, especially for people who haven't followed this closely? Tell us about those released so far. In total, 58 hostages have been released in the last three nights. Red Cross convoys drove them out of Gaza. They are mostly women and young children, mostly Israelis. There also have been some guest workers from Thailand released and dual nationals like a four-year-old American Israeli whose parents were killed in the Hamas attacks on October 7th. The U.S. is estimating that nine other American Israelis are still being held in Gaza. And on the flip side, Israel has released 117 Palestinian women and teens. They were in Israeli jails on a range of offenses. They were released to their families in the West Bank and Jerusalem. Can you tell us anything about the condition of the hostages while they were in captivity? And I'd also like to hear about the response to the release of Palestinian prisoners. Yeah, we have been hearing from family members who have spoken to their relatives about what they endured. Uh, Many lost weight. They ate mostly bread and rice, they said, slept on a row of chairs. According to an aunt of one hostage, this hostage escaped from his captives when the building he was held in was hit in an Israeli strike. He hid for a few days. So many different kinds of stories we're hearing. And even that many of the hostages were in the dark about what had happened to their family on October 7th. One thought her family had been killed. And when she was released, discovered that uh, her relatives are alive. Mm. One of the hostages released is now in serious condition in the hospital. But many do seem to be in good condition. We saw videos of some young kids released running to greet their parents. But you also asked about the Palestinian prisoners released. And I I would say that the Israeli government has forbidden Palestinians to greet released relatives with celebrations. Uh, There have been some police crackdowns. There have been some greeted with cheers and praise for Hamas in the West Bank. And Palestinians greeting them, you know, see them as part of the larger resistance against Israel. And, And what about conditions in Gaza during these days of this temporary ceasefire? More aid there was part of the deal. Is it getting in and is it making a difference? It is getting in. It's making a difference for bakeries, hospitals, sewage plants. They're able to you know, operate again with fuel and gas. But for individuals in Gaza, that's not really trickling down. Uh, they are still short really on the basics, even flour to make bread. And Daniel, before we let you go, what about the possibility of the ceasefire being extended? We're hearing that there are some talks about that. It does seem highly likely the ceasefire will be extended for at least another couple days. There are Israeli reports that Hamas has gathered a few dozen more hostages. But, you know, this really is just a drop in the bucket. There are still believed to be around 170 hostages in Gaza, still many Palestinians in Israeli jail that Hamas wants to negotiate for their release. And, of course, Israel says that ceasefire is temporary and that it will renew the military assault on Hamas in Gaza, which has been catastrophic for civilians in Gaza. That is NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you so much. You're very welcome. As you just heard, Hamas has released 58 hostages so far. Family members of Shmuel Brodach are among them. His daughter-in-law and her three children were taken by Hamas on October 7th, and they were released Sunday. And Shmuel Brodach is on the line with us this morning. Mr. Brodash, what does one even say at a time like this? I mean, I don't... Congratulations. I, I'm happy for you. Um, how are you? I'm fine. The family is here. I hope they will be well. That's it. Have you had any contact with your daughter-in-law and your grandchildren since their release? How are they? Uh, I'm speaking about them. They're, they're okay. Do you have any sense of of what they experienced? Did they eat? Were they able to rest at any point? Uh, 
Um, I can't talk too much about their conditions, but um, they, they came back there well. That's what I can tell you. Hmm. Can you tell us anything about where they were held? Do they have any no, sense of this? No, no, not at all. How did the release take place? I can't talk about it. I, I just want to tell you that I'm happy about their being here. I'm happy to hold them and to kiss them and mm-hmm. to uh, spoil them, and that's it. Well, how did you how did you manage during all this time? Tell me about yourself. This must have been horrible. We can't even imagine. I fought, I fought, I fought against the government to make them to make this deal. Hmm. I, w- I was fighting for this deal, and I will fight again for any other deal, and uh, until the last uh, prisoner will, will come back. Do you uh, have, will come back? Do you have any other relatives? I know that mostly women and children have been released. And do you have any other I don't family? Have any, I don't have any more relatives there. No. Um, how have your friends and relatives been greeting you? I'm I'm just interested in how you've kept your spirits up during this time. They um, hold my hand and they went around me, so they helped me to keep up. What was most helpful to you during this time? The hope. Hope? Yes. I I think many people, you have the best wishes of so many people right now. Many people have been keeping you and all of those affected by this in in their hearts. And may I ask, is there anything that is not helpful during this time? Um, um, it wasn't helpful to hear about war swords. I w- wanted all the swords to be uh, concentrate on the release of, of, uh, of the prisoners. Hmm. What else are you hoping for in the coming days? What What do you hope will happen next? That many people will be released again and again and again and again until there will be no, no more prisoners in Gaza. Hmm. That's my wish. Hmm. Do you have any words for those who are negotiating um, and continue to negotiate as this whole yes, situation take continues? It, take it as the main... Uh, I'm talking to the government. Take it uh, as the main uh, thing to do. Uh, it should be among the government purposes the the only the only one the only purpose which should be against the for the government now is to release everybody. That's it. The priority is the release of the hostages. Is that yes, is that what I'm hearing you say? For my English, yes. The first priority should the first and only priority should be to release all the prisoners. That's it. Before we let you go, how are you going to spoil your grandchildren? I'm going, uh, when they be released from the hospital, I'm going to take them uh, for a shopping day. And they will buy, and I'll buy them all the world. All Everything, all the toys. Yes. Any sweets? Yes. Any special things that they particularly like? Yes, of course. They like Kindle. You know what is Kindle? A Kindle? Oh. Kinder. Kinder. Oh, chocolate. Yes, Kinder, the chocolate yes, with the yes. toys there. Yes, okay. Yes, oh, yes. yeah, those are a favorite for everybody. Well, Mr. Yes, Brodich, my, my very best wishes to you and your family. I do thank you for speaking with us at such a dif- delicate time. And our best wishes for you. It, it will be a joyous holiday season, I'm sure. Thank you very much. That is Shmuel Brodich. His daughter-in-law and his three grandchildren were released by Hamas yesterday.
The United Nations Climate Summit starts this week in Dubai. Average global temperatures keep rising, leading to questions about the point of the talks. Here's NPR's Michael Copley. People were angry when UN climate talks ended last year. Big oil and gas producers blocked language from a final agreement calling for a phase-out of fossil fuels, the main drivers of global warming. There was a great sense of despair from many of us. That's Sandrine Dixon de Cleve, co-president of the Club of Rome. It's a nonprofit in Switzerland that works on climate change. She called the UN meetings a circus run by oil producers. Part negotiation, part trade show, where the number of fossil fuel lobbyists has multiplied. And because pavilion space at the event has gotten so expensive, corporations with deep pockets can get more access to decision makers. Those that have pavilions might be able to invite certain governments to come and have a conversation. She says those interactions can amount to indirect lobbying. So I think it's incredibly important that we take into consideration this aspect, which has created a very unfair playing field. David Wasco of the World Resources Institute shares some of those concerns, but he says the UN meetings are still really important, in part because every country has a seat at the negotiating table. At a G20, <laughs> for example, you know, you have the big guys. And so the little guys who are getting hurt and aren't the major emitters are not really well represented. Wasco says the UN talks aren't designed to solve the problem of climate change on their own, but that they do act like a kind of lighthouse. They sort of give us a sense of the direction we need to travel in and also can be a catalyst. Right now, the world's moving in the wrong direction on climate change according to a recent UN report. Emissions of planet-warming gases keep going up. Dixon DeClev says the consequences of that are starting to become clear. In Europe, most of the conversations over the summer were around either floods, droughts, or fires. And we could say that globally. The host of this year's gathering is the United Arab Emirates, a major oil producer. Dixon DeClev says the country could use that expertise to help chart a path for getting the world off fossil fuels. But right now, fossil fuel producers, including the UAE, plan to boost production in the coming years. Michael Copley, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Monday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, research shows teens benefit from sleeping in more. That's led some states to ban early classes. The effort to do that has stalled in Nashville, though, and we'll look at why. It's 719. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Giving Tuesday is a day to strengthen organizations that have a positive impact in your life and your community. I'm Lisa Mullins. When you support WBUR, you fuel journalism that strengthens our democracy. And when you give now, you'll get in on our Giving Tuesday match. Several members of our Murrah Society gave their money to make your support 50% larger for WBUR. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 
It's a busy morning at Logan Airport with people flying to wrap up the Thanksgiving holiday. The website FlightAware says there are 22 delayed flights in and out of Boston right now and no cancellations. Mostly sunny and windy today with highs in the low 50s. Skies stay mostly clear tonight and we'll have lows around 30. Tomorrow, mostly sunny again, but much colder with highs only in the upper 30s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to use strong passwords and a password manager. CISA.gov slash secureourworld. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. From Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Oprah Winfrey and Arthur Brooks have some advice for how we can all be happier. They write about it in their book, Build the Life You Want, which is also a podcast streaming series. Finding purpose in life has been a driving force for them both. And for Winfrey, that began with the first film she starred in. I have known since literally the moment I was on the set of The Color Purple in 1985, and watching Steven Spielberg, Quincy Jones, Alice Walker, all work together in creating that film, something resonated in me that said, I want my work to feel like this. And so from that moment forward, I thought, I want to come to work every day, feeling the way I felt every day when I was on set doing The Color Purple. So that feeling of being fulfilled, being satisfied, having meaning and enjoyment while you're doing it has followed me through. Now, I didn't know that there was a science to that, but that's how I've moved throughout my life since 1985. So it sounds like like anything else, you got something that you want to duplicate or replicate or get to again, and you figure out a way to get to it again. I think that's almost, and Arthur, you can correct me if I'm wrong there, that's almost a, a way to get to a scientific kind of way to, to do things. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of the scientific process, basically. It's kind of yeah. it's more or less how we do research. But the data that we're getting is the experience that we have in our everyday lives. The problem is that, as Oprah and I talk about in this book, many people start with the very wrong concept of happiness itself. They think of happiness as nothing more than a feeling, which it's not. Happiness is evidence or feelings are evidence of happiness. I mean, if we're chasing feelings, our happiness is going to depend on what we had for breakfast or whether or not we got yelled at by our partner. You know, and that's just no good. We need to actually be able to manage it a lot more. We're also, in this book, one of the most important things that we talk about is getting people more comfortable with the fact that unhappiness is part of a happy life as well. Is it because you need to know what is unhappiness to know what happiness is? Well, that's part of it. I mean, Oprah talks about this really unbelievably compellingly, about the fact that, that the contrast really matters. 
Well, the contrast matters so much because even now, because I know there's a science to it, when I'm going through a challenge or crisis or difficult time, I know that the bounce on the other side of that is going to be so much better because I allow myself to feel whatever it is that's going on that's making me uncomfortable, that's making me unhappy, so that when I get to the other side of it, I can actually be happier, happier. And so for me, I think while we were talking about, you know, putting these ideas together, I, I, I said to Arthur, so what we're really looking for is happierness. So, and this is a thing, A, to know that you can't make yourself instantly happy tomorrow or right now, but you can do little things to get happier. All of us can. It's so important for us to understand this. Can, this book that we put together is, it's in ordinary language. This is not for scientists, but it's based on the best <laughs> science such that it's kind of the, the owner's manual for your, your emotions. Well, there's a, there's a, a neuropeptide in the brain called oxytocin. That's the, the molecule of human connection. You get it from eye contact and touch in person. You don't get it from social media. God knows you don't get it over social media. <laughs> and so the result is all the time we're spending on our phones when we're with other people, we're depriving ourselves from that hormone that our brain needs to actually give us the love that we seek. And we have the protocols, the hygiene that people can use to manage their own emotions to feel much, much better. Yes. And it's so interesting. Years ago, I remember being at the airport in, uh, in Chicago at O'Hare. The plane was late and I was like, I had my head down and I was just like so tired. Now it's three hours. And, you know, when they keep saying it's delayed and a woman comes up to me, taps me, how she recognizes me with my head down, taps me and says, you're not acting like you do on TV. I said, excuse me. And she goes, well, on TV, you're hugging everybody. I needs me a hug. I need me a hug. So I got up and I hugged the woman. You hugged her. My introverted self in public isn't walking around hugging people all the time. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. And then, by the way, this is one of the great secrets to being happier is acting as if you were the person you wanted to be. I teach happiness because I want happiness. This is the point. We have traded off contact for convenience in the wake of the coronavirus epidemic. We've made convenience decisions at the expense of contact decisions. And we don't know what it actually is doing to our brain chemistry. We need to work in person more than we do, despite the fact that it's really inconvenient to do so. And you know, to that extent, you know, when Oprah and I were framing up this book, we got together and spent a bunch of days together in person. That was really important. Eye contact, touch, talking about these particular ideas such that we could have sufficient oxytocin. Sharing meals. Yeah, exactly right. Taking walks, sharing meals. Yeah. And there's going to be people, though, there's going to be people that are going to say, look, how am I going to be able to find happiness? Is there a tool, something that they can be armed with on hearing our conversation that can help them get toward that? Uh, Arthur, let's start with you on that. No, Oprah, Oprah, she's got it. Go, she's got it going on. I'm telling you, if you do something to make someone else happier, it's almost like it comes back to you exactly a hundredfold. I got that when I was a little girl living in Mississippi, and it was so rare that we ever got actually like a real candy bar, like a three musketeers <laughs> or uh, some Snickers. Oh my God, I'm enjoying. And I learned for myself, even as a little kid, that the candy bar tasted better if I had somebody to say, isn't this good? If I could share it with somebody. And so that philosophy of sharing what you have, understanding that 
all things in life get better when you share it. And when you do something for someone else, the benefit comes back to you as well as to them. I, I, that's where I get my great joy. Beautiful. And you know, the big point here is that, you know, people say, if I had particular gifts, if I had that wealth, if I had that power, if I had that fame, if I had that intelligence, if I had that Instagram following, I don't care, then I'd be happy. That's wrong. You would be happy if you used your gifts in service of others. That's Arthur Brooks and Oprah Winfrey. Their self-help book, Build the Life You Want, is a podcast and video streaming series, which you can see on YouTube. Oprah, Arthur, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. We look at why a small group of striped bass off Martha's Vineyard might be defying their nature by sticking around rather than leaving for warmer waters. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual Open House, November 29th, buacademy.org. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. This is the fourth and final day of an agreed-to pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. Fifty-eight hostages have been released by Hamas thus far. More are expected to be freed today. Efret Bronharlev is the CEO of Schneider's Children's Hospital, where many of the hostages were taken upon their release. We are giving the best medical and emotional care that is possible for them. Israel has released more than 100 Palestinians held in Israeli jails. The U.S. says nine Israeli Americans are still being held in Gaza. Three days of memorials are getting underway today in Georgia for former First Lady Rosalind Carter. She died November 19th at the age of 96. Her body will lie in repose at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum in Atlanta before two services. Stephen Fowler with Georgia Public Broadcasting reports. Plains is where Rosalind grew up, where she raised a family, and where she and Jimmy returned after his stinging presidential defeat. Services will be at Maranatha Baptist Church. It's where she taught Sunday school and volunteered with the church and its food ministry for decades. The service there is for friends and family only, but there's expected to be a crush of people lining the town to pay the respects. Wednesday, she'll be buried on the grounds of the family's house. It's the same one they've lived in since 1961. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A man accused of shooting three students of Palestinian descent near the University of Vermont has been arrested. Police say they arrested the suspect yesterday. He's due in court later today. All three of the students survived the shooting on Saturday and remain hospitalized. Police are investigating the shooting as a possible hate crime. 
Application fees for apartment hunters are becoming more and more common. That's even though it's illegal for landlords in Massachusetts to charge them. But as WBOR Simone Rios reports, there's little enforcement of the law. Multiple low-income renters tell WBUR they had to pay around $50 per adult, often just to see apartments. Some have paid fees as many as a dozen times. Doug Quattracci of the group Mass Landlords warns against charging application fees, but says the practice is now widespread. There's almost no enforcement. There's no enforcement on the state or city side because they don't have the tools for it, no funding. And then there's no enforcement on the renter side because renters are desperate for any place to live. Vermont and Massachusetts are the only states to ban these fees by landlords. But defenders of tenants and landlords complain the law is overly vague. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. A large section of the green line of the T is closed this morning. The entire line is closed between North Station and Kenmore Square. The B branch is also closed between Kenmore and Babcock Street. And the E branch is closed from Copley to Heath Street. The T says the closure will help get rid of some of the slow zones on the line. Service should resume December 6th. The section of the line to Union Square and Medford Tufts will also be closed closed at night for the next two weeks. It's 733. WBUR supporters include the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with Uni Restaurant and Sashimi Bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. The extra week off didn't do much to help the Patriots. They lost to the Giants yesterday 10-7 in New Jersey. The Pats' record is now 2-9. They'll host the L.A. Chargers next Sunday. The Celtics topped the Atlanta Hawks 113-103 last night at the Garden. The Seas will host the Chicago Bulls tomorrow. And tonight, the Bruins will visit the Columbus Blue Jackets. We'll have a mostly sunny day today with highs in the low 50s. It'll also be windy. Tonight, temperatures fall to around 30 and skies stay mostly clear. Colder tomorrow with highs only in the upper 30s, but it'll be mostly sunny. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. As graphic images from the war between Israel and Gaza flood social media platforms, people are claiming those images are fake, that the deaths and injuries they depict have been staged. And Paris Shannon Bond reports on this latest iteration of a disturbing trend. There's a split-screen video. On one side, a young man lies injured in a hospital bed. On the other, a similar-looking man walks through rubble in Gaza. I'm now walking in a neighborhood where there were houses. There are no houses anymore, he says. The post on X, formerly known as Twitter, claims the videos show the same person. It accuses him of faking his injuries, only to be, quote, miraculously healed and walking around just a day later. But the videos actually show two different people. One is a Palestinian teenager in the West Bank who lost his leg this summer. The other is a Palestinian social media influencer in Gaza. 
The conflation of the two is a prime example of a crisis actor narrative, the false claim that people are pretending to be victims. It is a means by which you blunt those narratives or the reality on the ground. You discredit them off the bat. Mustafa Ayad is executive director for Africa, the Middle East, and Asia at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, a nonprofit that studies extremism. Crisis actor narratives have become a standard element of the messy information landscape of catastrophe, from the war in Syria to the Russian invasion of Ukraine to mass shootings here in the U.S. Sometimes the claim is that a real victim never existed. Other times, behind-the-scenes movie footage is presented as proof an incident was staged. But Ayad says the intent is the same. It comes out of a defensive posturing, trying to essentially downplay civilian casualties in conflicts of this nature. And that's why the false claims keep coming. They're a way of deflecting the horrors of war. Claims that Palestinians are manufacturing injuries and deaths are particularly widespread online, where videos and pictures are often derided as creations of Pallywood. That term, a mashup of Palestine and Hollywood, was coined in 2005 by an American professor in the aftermath of the disputed killing of a Palestinian boy five years earlier. Mentions of Pallywood have steadily increased on social media since Hamas's October 7th attack, according to fact-checkers at Logically, which tracks online disinformation. That includes false claims amplified by the Israeli government's official account on X that Hamas tried to pass off a doll as a child killed in Gaza. The BBC confirmed the photos in question depict a real child, and the At Israel account has deleted that post. Speaking on a panel about disinformation in the war, Emerson Brooking of the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab says the episode shows... Even when the image is real, even when the, the context is real, people still approach it having so many existing biases that they can dismiss this evidence before their eyes. Crisis actor accusations have also been levied at Israelis. Some social media posts question whether Hamas really killed 1,200 people in Israel on October 7th, despite graphic images and survivors' stories. When CNN interviewed children whose parents were killed by Hamas, a TikTok user accused the network of, quote, hiring actors and photoshopping grief. That video has been taken down. The flood of crisis actor claims may be a result of the sheer volume of imagery that's available online, says Mike Caulfield, who studies the spread of viral rumors at the University of Washington. I don't think we're meant to deal with this level of traumatizing video. Faced with that amount of footage, there's no question it can be hard to sort fact from fiction. Clips from video games and images from other conflicts are being misrepresented as showing Gaza or Israel. Some images have been revealed to be generated by artificial intelligence. But claiming civilian deaths are fake takes skepticism and turns it into justification, says Ayad. One of the toughest parts of a war is believing that your side has been involved in killing civilians. He says calling victims crisis actors is a way to avoid grappling with that reality. Shannon Bond, NPR News. 
Research shows that early school start times are bad for teenagers' mental and physical health. So bad that California has decreed that high schools cannot start before 8:30 a.m. And Florida passed a similar law this year. But in Nashville, most public high schools start at 7:05 in the morning. That's among the earliest start times in the country. Catherine Sweeney of Nashville Public Radio reports a new mayor wants to change things, but it turns out it's not that easy. Most teenagers aren't morning people, but it's not their fault. Dr. Kayla Wallstrom is a researcher at the University of Minnesota studying how education policy affects learning. All teenagers have this shift in their brain that causes them to not feel sleepy until about 10:45 or 11 at night. But they still need at least eight hours of sleep. They don't really fully awake until about eight in the morning. That's because of melatonin. It's something you can buy at the pharmacy, but it's also a hormone our brains release for free to make us sleepy. Teenagers' brains release it on average three hours later than the brains of adults and young kids. That makes getting up for the 7.05 a.m. first period in Metro Nashville Public High Schools painful. Nashville's new mayor, Freddie O'Connell, wants to push back that first bell. Prematurely early start times, particularly for adolescents, are problematic from student performance, mental and emotional health. But getting it done won't be easy, and it could be expensive. One reason high schools in Nashville start so early is busing. Like many districts, Nashville uses the same buses and drivers to pick up first high schoolers, then middle schoolers, and finally grade schoolers. All right, here we go. Good morning. So the thinking has always been, if some kids have to wait for the bus before sunrise, it should be sophomores, not kindergartners. And Mayor O'Connell admits some parents are concerned about the high school day ending later. It could interfere with sports or after-school jobs. Many families have a student who is able to work, uh, is expected to be in the economy. But the consequences of sleep deprivation for teenagers are a big deal. It's linked to depression, increased substance use, and lower grades. Researcher Kayla Wallstrom says figuring out later start times is worth it. She's talked with parents in districts that have done it. Many parents have anecdotally told me that their child is a different child. They are able to speak with them at breakfast. They are chatty in the car. They um, don't have moody episodes and fly off the handle. The parents are just saying it's remarkable that this has made such a change in their child's life and their family dynamics. All because a teenager gets a little more sleep. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Sweeney in Nashville, Tennessee. This story comes from NPR's partnership with Nashville Public Radio and KFF Health News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, we hear from a U.N. representative on efforts to get aid to people in Gaza. Mostly clear skies and temperatures in the low 50s today. Tonight, those fall to around 30. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, but only in the upper 30s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. 
Mail carriers across New England are entering their busiest time of the year. Nationally, the U.S. Postal Service estimates it'll be handling around 70 million parcels each day this holiday season. That's up about 14 percent from last year. Steve Doherty is a Boston-based communications specialist for USPS. We've been delivering Christmas now for about 250 years, so we know what to expect to some degree, and, and we have it kind of down to a science. This year, we, we've really ramped up our, our processing capabilities, so we should be able to get your packages from point A to point B uh, with little or no effort. USPS is also hiring for a variety of positions, including letter carriers, clerks, and mail handlers. Doherty says those jobs are long-term, not just for the holidays. Shares in Bedford-based iRobot are up 39 percent. That news comes after reports that regulators with the European Union plan to approve the company's merger with Amazon. EU officials are expected to rule on the nearly $1.5 billion merger in February. The deal still needs approval from U.S. regulators. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Scientists and tribal leaders are investigating whether something strange is going on with striped bass off Martha's Vineyard. They want to know whether a small population of the fish, sometimes known as stripers, are defying their migratory nature. Eve Zukoff reports that to find out, they're putting fish on the operating table. The patient is out cold. At 30 inches from snout to tail, it's propped on its back, upside down on a folding table. Four people lean over it, ready with sterile saline, scalpels, and sutures. A water pump runs steadily into the fish's mouth, and the overflow drips off the table. Brian Prendergast, research fellow for the Marine Biological Laboratory, begins the procedure. I need a um, vial. It takes less than a minute to pluck a few scales off a striped bass and deposit them into a tiny plastic tube. Do you need any more scales? Nope. Then a team member takes a muscle tissue sample. And finally, it's time for the main event. In this pop-up lab near the water, surrounded by tall trees and the occasional kingfisher, Prendergast makes a two-inch cut near the fish's stomach. I'm a little bit closer to the midline than I should be. He inserts a black acoustic tag, roughly the shape of a battery. Before the fish could land on the operating table, it spent 10 minutes in a cooler filled with water and an anesthetic that smells like cloves. The researchers knew the patient was ready for surgery when it lost its balance. So once the fish has sort of lost its ability to keep itself upright in the water, 
then we know that it's starting to work. That's Lisa Abbo, the team's veterinarian. And then we can give it a little pinch with our finger on the tail, and if it doesn't have any response, then we know that it's adequately anesthetized. This fall, officials from the Aquino-Wampanoag tribe partnered with researchers at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole to implant tags in 20 striped bass from Squibnocket Pond on Martha's Vineyard. If all goes to plan, it's the first time researchers will be able to document this unusual behavior of migrating fish who are instead staying in one place. It's not uncommon to have striped bass year-round in places, but typically they're landlocked. These fish aren't landlocked, they have a choice. So if they are staying here year-round, they're making a choice to be here. That's according to Brett Stearns, who oversees the tribe's natural resources department. He says striped bass typically leave the northeast in the fall, migrating to warmer waters in the southeast. But if they are sticking around, as many suspect, they're likely snacking on the local herring population. And restoring that fish population has been a major focus of the tribe in the last decade. Turn of the century, there was an estimated population of herring within the Squibnocket system around 1.5 million. And now we're looking at about 3% of historic averages. That's Andrew Jacobs, also with the tribe. He says herring hold a special cultural significance for the Aquinawampanog. And he says warming waters from climate change could be prompting striped bass to stay around the pond year-round. And that could help explain why herring populations have dropped. After the incision is sewn up, the striper patient is rushed into Jacob's hands. He's standing in waist-deep water, ready to help the fish wake up. So we're holding its mouth open to the current right here, so water's flowing over those gills. It'll slowly uh, dissipate uh, the anesthesia within its body, and then when it's ready to uh, swim off on its own, it, it'll let you know. The team expects that in the next few weeks, the 20 tagged fish will start to make the key decision to stay around Squibnocket Pond or begin the migratory journey south. Either way, acoustic receivers will pick up their movements. The researchers will be able to tell a story of where striped bass are going and relate that back to the herring population. For us to revive and, and, and bring back the herring, we need to understand what the predator-prey dynamic within the ecosystem is. So it's just one more key to a very large puzzle. As the fish begins opening and closing its mouth and thrashing its powerful tail, it's time for Jacobs to let go and hope for data. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. Here with WBUR on a Monday, coming up at 8.20 on Morning Edition. Political violence is expected to be a big topic for President Biden as he runs for re-election, but he has never visited Charlottesville, Virginia, where it's been more than six years now since a neo-Nazi rally in which a counter-protester was killed. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around, let's feast. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. More hostages are expected to be freed today as Israel and Hamas consider extending the temporary ceasefire that's set to expire later today. 
The person suspected of shooting three college students of Palestinian descent in Burlington, Vermont, is due in court today. And public school students in Portland, Oregon, are returning to class this morning for the first time in more than three weeks as a teacher's union reaches a tentative deal with the state's largest district. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Provider Group, an insurance, brokerage, and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. Low 50s today under mostly sunny skies. It's 46 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Martinez. It's the final day of a four-day pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas, and there are signs a ceasefire could be extended. Yesterday, Hamas indicated it was open to an offer from Israel to add one day to the ceasefire for every 10 hostages released by Hamas. So far, the militant group that controls Gaza has agreed to release 58 of the estimated 240 hostages it captured on October 7th. In exchange, Israel has agreed to free 150 Palestinians held in Israeli prisons and to allow much-needed aid to reach the enclave. For the latest on these ongoing negotiations, I'm joined by National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby. John, so can we expect the ceasefire to last beyond today? What are the chances of that happening? Well, we don't know. We certainly hope that it can be. Uh, Today is the fourth and final day of this uh, arrangement. Uh, We're looking forward to seeing the list of uh, those who will be coming out today. Uh, We certainly hope that two American women are on that list. Uh, And as you heard the president say yesterday, Israel has committed to extending uh, extending the pause uh, for additional hostages to come out. Uh, Really, the onus is going to be on Hamas. Now, as you indicated they have said that they'd be interested in in pursuing an extension uh, but really it's going to be up to them to be able to come up with those 10 hostages per day is there any particular time today when hamas would have to commit to for this to even happen i'm not aware of a particular time on the clock like a deadline today Mm -hmm. um i I think obviously uh, as the day goes on we'd like to see some better clarity uh whether uh, this can be extended uh, tomorrow and and the day after that but we'll have to we're just going to have to wait and see. This is literally, and I, and I don't mean to, this isn't hyperbole. I mean, the, we have been working this literally by the hour, and that will be no different today. And can it be any 10 of the hostages, does, does, or does there have to be a specific group of 10 people? That'll have to be arranged between Israel and Hamas in terms of if there's an additional 10, who that's going to be and, uh, who, and who qualifies to be in that group. Um, that would, that's, something, that, that's something that would have to be worked out between the two. Okay. What is President Biden doing to try to extend the pause, to try to maybe put his thumb on the scale on this? Well, he's been personally engaged well before this deal got implemented. In fact, he was, he was really responsible for getting it over the finish line. And then in the last uh, three days, and, and of course throughout today, he'll be personally involved uh, as well, uh, engaged with the leaders. Yesterday he spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Emir of Qatar, again, to make sure that we are moving forward as much as possible and to explore the idea of an extension uh, on Hamas's part and on Israel's part. That was one of the prime focuses of his communications uh, yesterday. So uh, personally engaged, and I would fully expect him to stay personally engaged going forward. And just to be clear, uh, from Israel's side, is your understanding that if Hamas does agree to the additional 10 hostages, that the pause would be extended for one more day on Israel's part? Yes, sir. All right. Now, we're expecting Hamas to release more hostages today. What can you tell us about the, pr- the people that are going to be released? Well, again, this is the, the, 
the first increment of more than 50, which are all women and children. So we have every expectation that the hostages to be released today will be female. Now, we don't know exactly who they are. We haven't seen the list yet, um, and we don't know what the mix is between uh, adult females or uh, or children, uh, but we would expect they're, they're all going to be women and, and children coming out today. Uh, we normally get a sense uh, so far anyway, uh, in the mid morning hours about what that list is going to look like and who's going to be on it. Uh, and then of course we do everything we can to, to monitor the actual exchanges as best as possible. So hopefully today there'll be yet another installment of hostages coming out the last installment of this particular deal. What do you think it's going to take to get every single surviving hostage released? Well, it's going to take, it's going to take a couple of things. Number one, commitment on both sides, leadership on both sides, uh, to agree to extending the pause. And the, the pause is also, and don't forget, it gives us an opportunity when there's a pause in fighting to, to surge in much needed humanitarian assistance, food, water, medicine, and now fuel. Uh, the Israelis have agreed to let fuel go in tens of thousands of gallons per day, which is really uh, incredibly important. Um, so we you need commitment on both sides, and you also need Hamas to be able to identify, locate, and secure uh, all the hostages that it or other groups are holding. That's National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a tough year for coral reefs around the world. Some of the highest ocean temperatures ever recorded helped spark bleaching events and coral die-offs. In Florida, marine scientists responded to the crisis over the summer with a massive rescue operation moving endangered corals to saltwater tanks on land. NPR's Greg Allen reports, months later, ocean temperatures have dropped and they've begun returning corals to their native habitat. For decades, Florida's coral reefs, like those around the world, have faced a host of challenges. Declining water quality, overfishing, even battering by boat anchors have degraded many reefs. Disease has also played a major role, wiping out entire species and contributing to the steady decline. But this summer's ocean heat wave brought a whole new set of challenges to the reefs. As water temperatures in Florida's Keys rose over 100 degrees, dozens of groups and hundreds of volunteers scrambled to move onshore corals they were growing in underwater nurseries. But over the last month, water temperatures have dropped to a more seasonal 80 degrees. Jason Spadero with Moat Marine Lab's Coral Reef Restoration Program says staff are returning corals to the offshore nurseries. Right now, we've put back closing in on 7,000 corals so far, and we'll be continuing those operations through at least the end of the calendar year and probably into early 2024. For years now, Moat and other groups have maintained large underwater nurseries where they grow coral on PVC trees. When they're large enough, corals are transplanted onto reefs. It's all part of a program coordinated by NOAA to restore reefs that are vital not just to the environment, but also to the economy of the Florida Keys. Although many corals died in the heat wave, Spadaro says some did remarkably well. We had several genotypes that showed those hallmarks of resilience that Moat's science-based restoration strategy really focuses on. Um, and even some of our coral babies that were bred here on land and then were put out into the nurseries weathered the entire stress event without bleaching. Despite the reality of climate change and the likelihood that ocean temperatures will continue rising, Spadero is optimistic about the future of Florida's coral reefs. We know that we've got the genotypes and the traits in those populations that are resilient to these stresses. And the, the focus really is moving those disease-resistant, thermally tolerant genotypes into that restored community. 
For now, Spadaro says, corals are just being restored to their offshore nurseries. But soon he expects his and other groups will resume transplanting healthy corals back onto reefs. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel and Hamas say they're considering extending a ceasefire that's set to expire after another hostage and prisoner swap expected later today. It's Monday, November 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, police in Burlington, Vermont, have arrested a suspect in the shootings of three young men of Palestinian descent on Saturday night. Also this hour, as global climate talks begin later this week in Dubai, many countries' economies remain dependent on fossil fuels. The challenge will be how do we step down from that dependency, still remain uh, with vibrant economies. And people applying for apartments in New Bedford are being forced to pay application fees that are illegal. Maybe they get a ton of applications for one unit. They find someone who looks great and they take them. But did they refund everyone else's fees? Probably not. Mostly sunny in the 50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. This is the fourth and final day of an agreed-to pause in the fighting between Israel and Hamas. The militants are expected to release more hostages today. Israel is expected to set free more Palestinians from Israeli jails. As NPR's Brian Mann reports, talks are continuing to extend the pause in fighting. The first three days have gone relatively smoothly with Israeli and other foreign hostages released by Hamas and Palestinian prisoners held by Israel also freed. Work is now underway for a fourth exchange later today. Michael Barsanay is from Kibbutz Beri, an Israeli community hit hard by Hamas's October 7 attack. As long as we get hostages back, that's fine. It's not all of them. We remember all those that are still there. Yesterday, Hamas offered to extend the temporary truce. The Israeli government signaled openness to a longer pause in fighting while more hostage prisoner exchanges are carried out. United Nations officials say if the deal is extended, it would allow more food and medical supplies to reach civilians in Gaza. Brian Mann, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Meanwhile, the White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says there are nine Americans still missing and presumed held by Hamas. The owner of social media platform X, Elon Musk, is in Israel today. He's meeting Israeli officials. They are urging him to combat online anti-Semitism. Today is the first of three days of memorial services for former First Lady Rosalind Carter. Services are planned in the Carter's home county in Georgia. The Carter's niece, Kim Fuller, offered a prayer during Sunday service at Maranatha Baptist Church, where the family has worshipped for decades. Dear Heavenly Father, this week at this moment, I just thank you especially 
for the life of Rosalind Carter. Mrs. Carter's body will lie in repose this evening at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum. Guests are invited to pay respects. Mrs. Carter died November 19th at the couple's home in Plains, Georgia. U.S. shoppers are continuing their spending spree as Cyber Monday caps off the busiest shopping weekend of the year. And Piers Alina Seljuk reports the total for the holiday season is expected to set a record despite economic concerns. So far, Black Friday already cleared last year's record. Just online, Americans spent almost $10 billion, up 7.5% from last holiday. That's according to Adobe Analytics, which tracks online transactions. It's forecasting another $10 billion in spending for Cyber Monday. Adobe also says discounts this year are hitting a high mark compared to years past. Categories seeing the biggest jumps in sales are electronics, clothes, toys, and jewelry. In stores, Black Friday has always proved to be the most popular day. Sensormatic Solutions, which analyzes retail foot traffic, says the next busiest days in stores are going to be the two Saturdays before Christmas. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A man accused of shooting three students of Palestinian descent near the University of Vermont is due in court today. Federal agents say they arrested the suspect yesterday. The students are still in the hospital after the shooting on Saturday. Officials say they're expected to survive their injuries. Police are investigating the shooting as a possible hate crime. Massachusetts plans to open more overflow space for families unable to get into the state's emergency shelter system. That space will be for families who were unable to secure shelter because of a cap set by Governor Healy. The system hit that cap earlier this month. State Housing Secretary Ed Augustus told WCVBs on the record the cap is actually allowing the administration to open up more space. One of the logics of putting the cap in place was to allow us to take some of the energy that we had been focusing on growing a system by about a thousand uh, units per month and putting that energy into exiting folks. So we've been able to successfully exit about 450 families since uh, September 1st. Augustus says despite helping those families, another 40 to 50 families come looking for shelter every day. He says overflow shelters should open up in the next few days. Boston City Councilors today will consider a plan that guarantees basic income for families living below the poverty line. Data show nearly 18 percent of people in Boston are living in poverty. That includes about one-third of children. Advocates say providing a basic income improves quality of life for people. Cities, including Chelsea and Cambridge, already have similar programs in place. The local arts advocacy organization Mass Creative has announced the winners of its advocacy and organizing fellowship. WBUR's Amelia Mason reports the year-long program supports 10 leaders in arts advocacy in Massachusetts. Fellows hail from all over the state and include individual artists as well as leaders from cultural organizations. Mass Creative's director of organizing, Richelene Cadet, says the goal is to help arts advocates tackle the toughest problems facing the creative sector in Massachusetts. Everyone has a voice, and it's a matter of, like, can you create a safe and brave space for them to be able to utilize that voice? And it's kind of like the mindset with creating this fellowship. It's like, how do we bring in people to feel empowered to continue to do the work? Fellows will receive a $5,000 stipend and learn skills like fundraising, coalition building, and how to lobby elected officials. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Amelia Mason. It's 8.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at solargardensma.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Celtics beat the Atlanta Hawks last night at the Garden. The final was 113-103. to The Seas will host the Chicago Bulls tomorrow. The Patriots fell to the Giants 10-3 yesterday in New Jersey. The Pats will host the L.A. Chargers next weekend. And tonight the Bruins will visit the Columbus Blue Jackets. It'll be mostly sunny today and in the mid-50s, clear overnight and in the 20s, sunny tomorrow and near 40. It's 45 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Today is the last day of a four-day truce between Hamas and Israel. The two sides have been exchanging hostages for prisoners since last Friday. Now both are indicating that they would be open to more releases to extend the temporary truce. Around 1,200 people were killed in Hamas attacks on Israel last month, and Palestinian health officials in Gaza say Israel's military response to the attacks has so far killed at least 13,300 people in the Gaza Strip. According to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, more than 1.7 million people have been displaced across the Gaza Strip since the war began. For more on how the pause is unfolding, I have Julia Tuma on the line. She's UNRWA's Director of Communications and is joining us from the Jordanian capital, Amman. Um, Juliet, so what are you hearing from your staff uh, since the truce began on Friday? What our staff are relieved about is uh, the period of calm that they've been going through uh, in the past few days. You see, I'm uh, just back from Gaza myself. I was there just before the um, pause uh, kicked in and it was very heavy bombardment during the day, during the night. In fact, I was awoken myself to the sound of heavy bombardment. So first and foremost, um, it is very welcome. There is a bit of respite for people after 50 days of very, very brutal war. How much aid have you been able to deliver since this pause began? It is safe to say that we've seen an increase in uh, the number of aid trucks coming in. Uh, Humanitarian supplies have been flowing uh, in a much smoother way uh, in comparison to how it was before the pause began. And that is, of course, very welcome. Much more is needed. Uh, Fuel is also coming in and cooking gas is coming in. So these are major uh, breakthroughs and and a significant improvement. Now, what we really need is for this flow to continue, to continue to be regular, and also to give a boost to the private sector. So in addition to humanitarian supplies, for commercial supplies to come in, nothing is open in, in Gaza. Driving through the streets, all the shops are closed, all the pharmacies are closed, apart from a few vegetable stalls here and there, there is, um, there is no market. Is there any particular item that is most needed right now? We're speaking here about 80% of the population of Gaza that have been has been forced to flee their homes. 
Some of them have fled their homes overnight, some with just the clothes or, or, on, on them. I mean, I met a man who said to me, you know, the jacket that I'm wearing, I've been wearing for the past 45 days, right? So people have lost everything and they need everything. Your agency has reported at least 108 workers killed in this war. What does that figure tell us about how things are uh, in terms of conditions on the ground? These are my colleagues, um, 108 UNRWA colleagues who have been killed since uh, the war began uh, in the Gaza Strip. This is the highest number of UN aid workers killed in the history of the United Nations. Um, it's not a number. I also have to remind myself that these are not statistics. These are teachers, doctors, engineers, people who are the backbone of uh, the largest UN operations in the Gaza Strip. And it is quite staggering. It is quite staggering. And we will not be the same without these colleagues. Right. And yet you still go in there and still try to help. Um, we know that another group of hostages is expected to be released today. Um, what do we know about how the remaining hostages are, what their condition is? This is not uh, an area that uh, UNRWA follows on. Uh, we welcome the release of hostages and, and prisoners. We do hope that the pause, the humanitarian pause continues. We also hope and call for the transformation of that pause into a much longer term humanitarian ceasefire across the board. If the pause does not continue, how are you preparing for the end of that truce tomorrow? Well, look, we are hoping that it would and um, we are calling that it becomes a long-term humanitarian ceasefire. It's been a brutal, brutal war with so many losses on all sides. It has got to stop. That's Julia Tumah, Director of Communications for UNRWA. Thank you very much. Thanks, A. In Vermont, authorities have arrested a suspect in the shooting of three young men of Palestinian descent. Police in Burlington announced in a press release that Jason J. Eaton was taken into custody Sunday afternoon after detectives completed a search of his residence near where the shooting took place. The 48-year-old is expected to be arraigned in court today. Earlier, authorities said it was too soon to call the incident a hate crime, but many in the community are worried that it is. Brittany Patterson with Vermont Public has this report. Police say the three victims were all 20-year-old college students who lived out of state and were visiting one victim's relative for Thanksgiving in Burlington, Vermont's largest city. The men were walking down a residential street wearing kafiyas, the traditional Palestinian scarf, when authorities say they were confronted by a white man with a handgun. On Sunday, Burlington's police chief said in a statement the alleged gunman did not speak before opening fire, and the motive is unknown. Multiple civil rights groups and the families of the three victims want authorities to investigate the shooting as a hate crime. And they're not alone. What kind of a crime? Hate crime! What kind of a crime? Hate crime! At a vigil in front of Burlington City Hall Sunday evening, a few hundred people gathered, including Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman. I stand here to stand with oppressed people who now fear for their lives just walking down the street here in Burlington. Wafiq Faour is with the group Vermonters for Justice in Palestine. He says since the Israel-Hamas war began last month, he's called his family many times a day to check in. And today I received so many calls from my family members to ask me, how am I? Is that possible in Vermont 
Yes, it is possible. Across the U.S., the FBI says it's seen a spike in threats and violence against Jewish, Arab, and Muslim communities since the Hamas attack on October 7th. Olivia Mosley came to the rally from nearby Essex. I think it's hard not to see the attempted murder of three young Palestinians wearing the Palestinian kefaya, the scarf, at a time when we're seeing increased attacks throughout the U.S., Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's possible to separate those things. The FBI is now helping in the investigation, but the Burlington police chief cautions it's still early, and he urged the public not to jump to conclusions about what happened Saturday night. For NPR News, I'm Brittany Patterson in Burlington, Vermont. It's been more than six years since images of a neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, shocked the world. Hundreds of people with tiki torches chanted anti-Semitic slurs and a counter-protester was killed. And though the events of August 2017 motivated Joe Biden to run for president in 2020, he has not visited the town. NPR White House correspondent Deepa Shivaram traveled there and brings us this report. In August 2017, Joe Biden wasn't in elected office for the first time in a long time. He had mostly stepped away from political life, but he says the violence that unfolded in Charlottesville pushed him to jump back into politics. Here's how he put it in 2019. We can't forget what happened in Charlottesville. Even more important, we have to remember who we are. It's a line that he's come back to again and again in his first term. Now that his re-election campaign for 2024 has ramped up, Biden's been reminding voters of that day and how former President Trump responded to the violence, saying there were, quote, fine people on both sides. But for how pivotal of a moment Charlottesville was for Biden, he hasn't visited the town since then, not during his campaign or as president. And some residents of Charlottesville are pretty surprised by that. That's weird, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, come on down, President Biden. Carla Hunt is a retired educator. She says the neo-Nazi rally left a mark on the whole country, and there are still signs of it in the town today, on the street where Heather Heyer was run down by a car. Tributes to her cover the street, which has now been named after her. But the impact, I mean, you can still see it, you know, when you go down 4th Street. If that made an impact on him, he said that was one of the reasons he ran, then why wouldn't you, right? I mean, that would be something you'd do. Other residents like Amy Little agree. She thinks it's important for the president to come in person. I think there's a certain gravity in coming and seeing where those kind of things happen and really kind of getting a sense and breathing the air and seeing the sights. And I I think he should absolutely do that. But there are others like Kelly Vo, who says she thinks Biden has more pressing things to focus on. 2017 was a long time ago now. There's pandemic. There's a whole bunch of other places that happened since then. He's going where the news is, so... It is what it is. Presidential historian Barbara Perry works at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. She agrees political memory is short, which is why she says that even though Biden hasn't visited Charlottesville and 2017 can feel like a long time ago, it's important he still remind the country of what happened here. It's certainly a responsibility, it seems to me, of an incumbent president of the United States to remind Americans what we are fighting for to maintain our democratic republic. With the election less than a year away, Trump is still the apparent frontrunner on the GOP side. And polls show voters are still deeply concerned about the state of democracy. 
Biden has been sharpening his attacks on Trump, saying Trump is campaigning on a platform of violence. And Biden says Trump is a threat to democratic norms. So he's been asking voters from all parties to make that a central issue in 2024. The Biden campaign says the president plans to push the message of combating political violence in the run-up to the election. But what they won't say is whether Biden will make a trip to Charlottesville, the place he says inspired his run. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Charlottesville. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up at 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the stakes have never been higher as global leaders meet in Dubai to discuss combating climate change this week. Transitioning away from fossil fuels remains the biggest challenge. It's 819. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com, and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And real women have curves at ART. This holiday season, see the empowering new musical that explores life's unexpected curves. Starts December 6th, amrep.org. Spanish is the second most spoken language in the United States, but it is underrepresented in the world of opera. A production now at the Met is bucking that trend. When you speak your native tongue, I feel like my whole sense of self shifts and I feel anchored and knowing who I am. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly sunny and windy today with highs in the low 50s. Skies stay mostly clear tonight and we'll have lows around 30. Tomorrow, mostly sunny again, but much colder with highs only in the upper 30s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation. This is experiential education. More at drexel.edu. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter will be laid to rest Wednesday in Georgia. She died last week at the age of 96. Carter was a top advisor throughout her husband Jimmy's political career, from a Georgia state senator to governor and then president, and she was one of the country's most visible advocates for mental health care. There will be a private and public memorial over the next three days to honor her life and legacy. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler is with us now to tell us more about all this. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. So could you just start by telling us about some of the locations where Rosalind Carter will be recognized this week? I understand that they represent important places and causes in her life. So, I don't know, let's start with the wreath laying at her alma mater. 
Well, Carter attended Georgia Southwestern State University and remained active with the school throughout her life. You can literally see her impact on campus. There's the Rosalind Carter Health and Human Sciences Complex, the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers, and even a statue of the former First Lady made from Georgia granite. From there, she'll lie in repose this evening at the Carter Center in Atlanta, which she co-founded with her husband Jimmy in 1982 to focus on issues like uh, world peace, democracy, and global health care. You know, it's been more than 40 years since the Carters left the White House, but I think even people who don't remember their tenure there will remember all the things that they did in public and the public arena into their later years. How is that reflected in the memorials this week? Rosalind Carter's signature issue was mental health, pushing for better care outcomes, and seeking to remove stigma from mental illness and treatment. You know, as a testament to that, the family announced earlier this year Rosalind was diagnosed with dementia before she entered hospice care earlier this month. And that's also reflected in the work of the Carter Center in Atlanta and the tribute service at Emory University in Atlanta Tuesday. The former First Lady partnered with countless experts there, uh, tackling not just mental health, but things like women's rights. And now President Biden and Vice President Harris will both attend that service. And the family says every living First Lady have been invited to her funeral. And the funeral will be held Wednesday in Plains, Georgia. Would you tell us a little bit more about her ties to the town? Well, Plains is where Rosalind grew up, where she raised a family, and where she and Jimmy returned after his stinging presidential defeat. Services will be at Maranatha Baptist Church. It's where she taught Sunday school and volunteered with the church and its food ministry for decades. The service there is for friends and family only, but there's expected to be a crush of people lining the town to pay the respects. Wednesday, she'll be buried on the grounds of the family's house. It's the same one they've lived in since 1961. And before we let you go, Stephen, in the days since her death, how has she been remembered? Well, aside from people flocking to planes and paying respects at the Carter Center, there's been an outpouring of love and support for a powerful figure. Now, politically, Rosalind Carter was known as an equal to Jimmy, especially in the White House. I mean, she earned the nickname Steel Magnolia and kept a separate campaign schedule throughout his runs for office. You know, personally, there's been a lot to discuss about the Carters' love for each other. I mean, they were married for 77 years, Michelle, and how they modeled a type of relationship that many people strive to have. In a time when political figures and their spouses can be polarizing, this last week has shown that someone like Rosalind Carter can exist beyond today's bitter partisanship. That's Stephen Fowler with Georgia Public Broadcasting in Atlanta. Stephen, thank you. Thank you. The current truce between Israel and Hamas, which governs the Gaza Strip, is set to expire today, though both sides indicate they are open to an extension. Along with the exchange of prisoners and hostages, the agreement is said to include better access for aid, and that's critical because along with shortages of food and other basic needs, fuel shortages have triggered communications blackouts, making it hard to reach loved ones, friends, and colleagues inside Gaza. NPR's Mohamed El-Bardisi spoke with people in Chicago who are trying to keep tabs on relatives caught up in the war. Mohammed Abu Sofia is a doctor from northern Gaza. He came to the United States in July for what was supposed to be just a two-month medical program at Cleveland Clinic. My dad and my mother were very proud of me for seeking the opportunity and going to continue my studies. I cried at the border when I had to say goodbye because I knew things can go bad at some point. I wasn't imagining that I would be going to say the last goodbye, actually. One week into the war, Abu Safiya says his family home was hit by an Israeli airstrike. He got a long text from his father before it happened. 
in the message he said, just look after yourself and we hopefully will be okay. And after that, I received the news that my father was killed. Two of his brothers were badly injured. They were treated at Al-Shifa Hospital, but were discharged just three days later. They took refuge in their aunt's home nearby the hospital, still injured. Then, Israeli forces began moving towards the hospital, claiming Hamas uses it as a military command center. A couple of weeks later, Abu Safiya received a message from his colleague at Al-Shifa. She texted me saying, I don't know how to put this in words, but your brother Osama was killed because an Israeli airstrike hit my aunt's house where they evacuated to. He was scared for the rest of his family. Where are they? Are they under the rubble? Are they alive? Are they injured? And it takes another five hours of waiting, knowing that the worst could actually happen. The worst did happen. Abu Safiya says altogether at least 39 members of his family have been killed, including his mother, father, and five brothers. My youngest brother, he is what we call the fruit of the family. Um, he used to play a lot of video games, and whenever he had a, any problem, he used to interrupt whatever I'm doing. And let me tell you, it's one of the things that I miss most, and I know he won't be interrupting me anymore. Many of the children in his family have been killed, including two who succumbed to their severe injuries while being treated at Al-Shifa Hospital. Abu Safiya has watched all of this happen from his uncle's home in Chicago. Mohammed Abu Riel has lived in the U.S. for years. We are waiting every single second to see, would somebody tell me that they are still alive? That is the most difficult time. That is the reality, and there is no safe place in Gaza. That's unfortunately the reality of the Palestinian people. We wanted to live like every other human, in peace, security, free from occupation. Hamad al-Bardisi, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. Application fees for apartments in Massachusetts are illegal, but as WBUR Simone Rios reports, they're still happening. He'll look at why. It's 8.29. Join some of your favorite WBUR hosts for our annual reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol at City Space on Tuesday, December 19th. The event is a benefit for Rosie's Place, the first women's shelter in the U.S. Get details and tickets at WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include the International Institute of New England, helping refugees and immigrants find safety, housing, jobs, and a new start in our communities, iine.org, and the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways, elliotthotel.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.N. says shipments of humanitarian aid have been making their way into Gaza during the four-day pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas. Juliet Tuma is a U.N. aid spokesperson. We've seen an increase in uh, the number of aid trucks coming in. Uh, humanitarian supplies have been flowing in a much smoother way in comparison to how it was before the pause began. Much more is needed. 
She was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. This is the final day of the agreed-to pause. Hamas is expected to release more hostages. Israel is scheduled to free more Palestinians from Israeli jails. The U.S. says nine Israeli Americans are still being held by the militants. Talks are continuing to potentially extend that pause in fighting. The president of Sierra Leone, Julius Mada Bio, has lifted a nationwide curfew imposed after gunmen attacked the country's primary military barracks and prisons. Yesterday's assault appeared to take security forces by surprise and raise concerns about a potential coup, but calm has since been restored. Most of the leaders have been arrested. Security operations and investigations are ongoing. We will ensure that those responsible are held accountable. He was speaking last night. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A large section of the green line of the T is closed this morning for a construction project. The entire line from Kenmore Square to North Station will be closed through December 6th. The entire E branch is also closed, and there is no B branch service between Kenmore and Babcock Street. The T says the closure will allow it to remove some slow zones from the line. The Haymarket Station will also be shut down on the Orange Line for the next two weeks. Scientists expect more frequent, heavier storms in Massachusetts with climate change. To protect hundreds of homes from flooding in part of the Charles River watershed, one community is engineering a pond to hold more water. WBWAR's Paolo Mora explains. Hardy Pond in Waltham is big. It spans 45 acres. Nearby wetlands add another 40 acres of potential water storage. The community wants to increase the capacity of both to hold storm water. Julie Wood is with the Charles River Watershed Association. She says the main idea is, before a big rainfall, to lower the pond's volume by opening an existing dam. We could actually time the storage to the peak of the storm and hold water safely upstream where it won't cause any damage. The state awarded the community $100,000 to design the pond's storage system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. Springfield-based Merriam-Webster says people wanted to get real this year. That's based on the publication's word of the year, authentic. It's defined as not false or imitation. Merriam-Webster says lookups for the word were at an all-time high this year. This is the publication's 20th anniversary of choosing a top word. Some of the other top words of the year include riz, which means a romantic appeal or charm, and kibbutz, which is a farm or settlement in Israel. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include the lyric stage with Ken Ludwig's The Game's Afoot. This comedy mystery makes a memorable multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th. LyricStage.com. The Patriots' record is now an abysmal 2-9. They lost to the Giants yesterday 10-3 in New Jersey. The Pats return home next weekend to play the L.A. Chargers. The Celtics beat the Atlanta Hawks 113-103 last night at the Garden. And tonight the Bruins visit the Columbus Blue Jackets. We'll have a mostly sunny day today with highs in the low 50s. It'll also be windy. Tonight, temperatures fall to around 30 and skies stay mostly clear. Colder tomorrow with highs only in the upper 30s, but it'll be mostly sunny. It's 46 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. 
Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Annual climate negotiations begin this week in Dubai. Leaders from around the world will attend. But absent from the lineup will be U.S. President Joe Biden. White House aides reportedly say he'll be busy with other issues, such as the Israel-Hamas war. Meanwhile, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says it's time to get serious about cutting emissions. It requires tearing out the poisoned root of the climate crisis, fossil fuels. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk is here with us now to tell us more about these upcoming talks and what's at stake. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so the leader of the UN is calling out fossil fuels as the poison roots of climate change. But this year's talks are hosted in Dubai in the oil-rich United Arab Emirates. You know, not to be mean, but how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely controversial. Um, The UAE has put an oil executive in charge of the climate meeting. And, you know, that person does have some control over what gets on the agenda, you know, how negotiations play out. So there's been some concern from climate activists, um, even from some scientists, about whether everyone is on the same page. Because the science is really clear, you know, fossil fuel use needs to decrease very, very quickly. On the other hand, though, the whole point of these negotiations is that every country is at the table. Um, And here's how Inger Anderson, the director of the United Nations Environment Program, explains it. Look, the reality is that many, many economies are coal, oil and gas dependent. Some of these right now we have one such state being the host. The challenge will be for us all, how do we step down from that dependency, still remain with vibrant economies? And that's really the issue here. So, Rebecca, you cover this all the time. But for those of us who don't keep up with it as closely as you do, how is the world doing on phasing out fossil fuels? Uh, Not good. Not good. Uh, Right now, global emissions of planet warming pollution, you know, mostly from fossil fuels, are going up slightly um, when they need to be falling in order to avoid catastrophic climate change. You know, the planet is currently on track for at least two and a half degrees Celsius of warming by 2100. That's compared to temperatures in the late 1800s. And two and a half degrees of warming is way beyond the limits set by the Paris Climate Agreement. It would lead to massive sea level rise and mass extinction of plants and animals, really bad stuff. But humanity is on a better trajectory now than when the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. So at that point, the planet was on track for more than four degrees Celsius of warming. So it's not enough, but we are making some progress. So what are the big sticking points that are expected to come up at the upcoming negotiations? Uh, Money and money. Less wealthy nations need trillions of dollars to transition to renewable energy like wind and solar. So far, most of that money is not available, which it's making it harder to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from low and middle income countries. The other big money topic is about getting wealthy nations, including the U.S., to follow through on a promise from last year's talks. And that was to set up a special fund for the damage caused by climate change in poorer countries. So far, that fund is empty. So that will be a really big topic of discussion. That's Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk. Thanks so much. 
Thanks. All right, people who set aside a few minutes each day to do something nice for someone can significantly improve their sense of well-being. That's the latest finding from researchers at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley and a team of collaborators. And as NPR's Allison Aubrey reports, if you want to test the concept yourself, it's possible to sign up online. This is not your typical research study. It's more of a citizen science project that so far includes the insights of more than 70,000 people. It's called the Big Joy Project. I signed up last week just as the holiday vibe set in. And my first act was to do a kind gesture for a stranger. Easy enough to do when I went for coffee. So a tall Christmas blend. Anything else? Uh, yeah, I'd like to pay for the person behind me today. You want to pay for the person behind you? How we feel at any moment can be a blend of different emotions, and much of what determines our moods may seem out of our control. But researcher Emiliana Simon-Thomas of UC Berkeley says their preliminary research shows people who commit to doing microacts of joy, as she calls them, each day, do get a boost in positive emotions. We know that some people report greater well-being, uh, better coping, less stress, more satisfaction with their relationships, more agency in their own happiness. The way the study works is participants take a short online survey to get started. Then every day for seven days, we're given different micro acts to try out and report back how each one made us feel. Some are acts of kindness toward a friend, a neighbor, or even a stranger in the coffee line. Others involve self-reflection or meditation. Another microact is called positive reframing, which is basically looking for a silver lining of a bad situation. I do believe that the kinds of skills that we're trying to teach are not just about being a better person yourself, right? They're about being a better person through investing in your tendency towards generosity and kindness and your sense of meaningful belonging in your community. At a time of global conflicts and political divide, it's easy to question whether small acts of joy can really make a difference. And the answer to this, the researchers say, stems from the ideas of the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who both spoke about how it's possible to feel joy even in the midst of suffering. The friendship between the two leaders inspired a documentary called Mission Joy. And scientist Alyssa Eppel, who is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco, says the Big Joy Project grew out of the two leaders' vision. What they really wanted to spread was the wisdom that we have more control over our happiness than we know, and that we just need to help people lift the curtain and experience some of these practices. Eppel studies how stress and anxiety can influence our health. She says these daily microacts of joy are certainly not a cure-all or a substitute for medicine for people who have depression or other mental health conditions. But she views them as a toolkit that can be used in your daily life. One thing we know through happiness science is that when we seek a path to our own happiness, we often cannot find happiness. When we try to make other people happy, we feel true happiness ourselves. And when we are full of feelings of purpose, connectedness, those are the basis of true happiness. So rather than thinking of joy as something that happens to you, it may make sense to think of it as a skill that you can get better at through practice. Just as you have to keep exercising to stay physically fit, the same likely goes for our emotional well-being. Alison Aubrey, 
NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the global economic implications of what might happen when private sector and government leaders gather at a U.N. meeting in Dubai this week to discuss limiting climate change. Mostly clear skies and temperatures in the low 50s today. Tonight, those fall to around 30. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, but only in the upper 30s. It's 46 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, tree farms around the state are gearing up for a rush of customers who are ready to deck the halls following the Thanksgiving holiday. Dave Morin with the Massachusetts Christmas Tree Association says there are about 100 family-run tree farms in the state. If you plan to visit one, Morin says you should make the trip as soon as you can. The trees are all in good shape. Unfortunately, we can't grow them fast enough. Most of the tree farms end up closing after about the first weekend. We're planting more than we're selling each year, but it takes 10 years for them to uh, get to a marketable size. Warren says trees at his farm in Uxbridge are listed for $80, but prices will vary by location. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget, Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's illegal for landlords to charge application fees for apartments in Massachusetts. But with little enforcement of the law, advocates say these fees have become the first costs many apartment hunters face. WBWAR's Simone Rios reports from New Bedford. Sheila Sanchez-Ortiz opens the door to her second-story apartment in New Bedford. She moved here from Puerto Rico last year to start a new life with her two kids. On a limited income in her new city, she wasn't expecting to pay an entry fee just to see apartments. You want to see the place, first you have to pay, she recounts. I'd fill out an application and nobody would even call me back. In a city and state with a deep housing shortage, Sanchez spent almost a year apartment hunting and paid application fees four times before landing her place. Interviews with multiple New Bedford area renters suggest Sanchez's experience is common, and some are paying application fees upwards of a dozen times. Ah, no, no, but, but yo lo chequeo cuando regresa a la oficina. Housing activist and real estate agent Carlos Betancourt spends much of his time helping low-income renters find apartments. He estimates four out of five of the places he sees charge application fees. Betancourt explains how it often works. An apartment will be listed online, and the person offering it will ask anywhere from $50 to $70 per adult, often just to see the place. Betancourt remembers bringing a man to an open house where everybody interested in the apartment had to pay. I remember that was a Friday afternoon, Saturday and Sunday, they were taking application for three days. One month later, they did another open house. 
So how many people went over there? I had no idea. A national survey found that nearly 9 in 10 renters across the country face application fees. Brokers are allowed to charge these fees, but in Massachusetts, landlords are not. Adding to the confusion, scammers are taking advantage of renters online as well, posing as landlords in ads. Attorney Ariel Nelson works with the National Consumer Law Center in Boston. She says renters often have no way of knowing if they're paying a legitimate fee. The landlord might charge a bunch of application fees, but it's unclear whether they're actually even looking at someone's application. Maybe they get a ton of applications for one unit and they are starting to go through the stack. They find someone who looks great and they take them. But did they refund everyone else's fees? Probably not. Nelson says Massachusetts and Vermont are the only states that bar landlords from charging people to apply for apartments. Here, the only fees landlords can legally charge are first and last month's rent, a security deposit, and the cost of changing locks. But advocates complain it's up to tenants to see that the prohibition on application fees is enforced. Nelson says that's a tall order for low-income renters struggling to find housing. She wants to see the attorney general do more enforcement. And I think that's why you do need government regulators to be part of this. They should be bringing enforcement actions against bigger players who engage in egregious behavior. The AG's office says it routinely gets complaints involving landlord-tenant disputes. But a spokesperson told WBUR the office has no way to identify how many of the complaints are about fees. Advocates on both sides complain that the law is overly vague. Jeffrey Turk is a local lawyer specializing in landlord-tenant issues. He argues that in some situations, the law doesn't seem to prohibit landlords from charging certain fees. But even judges get confused. I've had several judges say the statute is so poorly written, I don't know what's intended. I advise clients until the legislature rewrites the statute so it's clear or the Supreme Judicial Court decides it. It's not worth the risk. But application fees are becoming more common in Massachusetts, says Doug Quattracci of the group Mass Landlords. He says that's in part because of an extremely competitive market. But it's also become harder to evict bad tenants, Quattracci says, and owners have to thoroughly vet people applying. Going back 40 years ago, when you could evict a renter basically in 21 days or whatever, landlords didn't screen at all. But now you need to find out everything you can about a renter. People are looking at Facebook profiles to see evidence of smoking, and they're trying to pull up out-of-state records and all kinds of stuff. It's like a whole being a detective now. Quattrachi's advice to landlords is simple. You pay for the background check. But for prospective tenants desperate to find apartments in this market, many find they have no choice but to pay whatever the landlord asks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll talk with actress America Ferreira, who starred in Barbie and Ugly Betty. She's now one of the BBC's 100 Women for 2023. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Swan Galleries, with an auction of modern and post-war art on November 30th, featuring works from the early 1900s through mid-century modernism, with sculpture and paintings. Catalog, bidding, and exhibition information at swanauctiongalleries.com and on the Swan app. 
Giving Tuesday is about stepping back from the commercialism of the holidays. It's about giving back to organizations that give so much to us and our communities. I'm Tiziana Deering. Support WBUR now and get in on our Giving Tuesday match. Some members of our Moreau Society gave their money to make your support of WBUR 50% bigger. Get in on our Giving Tuesday match at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas is set to expire tonight, but the two sides may extend the pause and release more hostages. An annual U.N. climate summit gets underway in Dubai this week, and a new legal complaint alleges that Facebook parent Meta deliberately engineered its platforms to get kids addicted to them. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. Low 50s today under mostly sunny skies, around 30 tonight, and it'll still be mostly clear, only in the upper 30s tomorrow and mostly sunny again. It's 46 degrees in Boston. Things to watch for as the U.N. meets on climate starting this week. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where shoppers can find a great Cabernet, bourbon, or sparkling wine for everyone on their list this holiday season. Total Wine and More. Drink responsibly. Be 21. I'm David Brancaccio. First, tomorrow is Giving Tuesday as nonprofits look for some love during a season of spending. But between now and then is Cyber Monday, a time when apparently we're meant to use work time to shop online. Consumption is an economic barometer, and shoppers have been spending more vigorously than predicted. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more. Black Friday sales were up 2.5% over last year, according to MasterCard's spending pulse. MasterCard measures in-store and online sales across all forms of payment and does not adjust for inflation. What did we buy? Clothes and jewelry topped the list. MasterCard says online sales on Black Friday increased 8.5% from last year. Adobe Analytics says today, Cyber Monday, is still expected to be this year's biggest online shopping day. Adobe says the best deals today will be on electronics and furniture. If you're looking for bargains on appliances, you should shop on Thursday. The biggest deals on sporting goods are expected a week from today. And Adobe says for the first time, we'll do most of our online shopping on our phones. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. Looking at markets, S&P and NASDAQ futures are both down about a tenth of a percent. The dollar's lower with U.S. interest rates coming down of late. A euro costs about a dollar ten. Now to China, where officials have launched an investigation into one of the country's biggest financial services companies, which looks a lot like a bank, but is what is termed a shadow bank, and heavily into the creaky real estate market there. Here's Monica Miller with the BBC. Shangzhi Enterprise, it's one of China's largest private conglomerates with operations in financial services, mining, electric vehicles. Well, it has reported that they have potential 
total liabilities of $65 billion. Now, that's more than double its assets. I mean, these are called in China so-called shadow banks. They're firms that operate with very similar to a bank, except that, that they don't have quite the regulation that oversees them. And this has been uh, concerning for many people because many of their clients are middle class or upper middle class people. And any defaults or even concerns about delayed payments could dampen consumer confidence in an economy that is really softened uh, since the coronavirus outbreak. It is just rocking the financial problems of an already uh, problematic sector. Uh, we've spoken on this program about Evergrande and Country Garden, some of these where uh, they are just saddled in debt and people are left without homes that they have invested in, which is really what is was building up the Chinese economy. And uh, so this is a very concerning piece of news. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. On Thursday, the big UN summit on climate change kicks off. COP28 is happening in Dubai, part of the United Arab Emirates. There's confirmation that President Biden will not attend, but the U.S. is sending a senior delegation for a set of ways to judge progress, if any, at the summit. We turn to Vijay Vathaswaran, Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist magazine, who will be in Dubai. Vijay, what to watch, number one? I have one word for you, methane. Another gas, but it's not carbon dioxide that gets so much attention. It has an inferior public relations man, but in fact, methane is the most potent gas we can act on that creates warming in the short term. It's probably the quickest win to try to tackle emissions of methane from the fossil fuel industry in particular. I mean, it's not trivial, but it's a lower hanging fruit. If you could capture the methane before it goes out in the atmosphere, you might have positive effects quicker. That's exactly right. Carbon dioxide stays up in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. It's much more long lived. It's the principal problem. But methane has been largely overlooked is the second biggest cause, and it acts much more quickly. It also means that we can reduce its effects quickly. So it could buy us a, a crucial decade or more during which we can scale up alternatives like clean energy innovation. All right. So as COP28 goes on, you'll be watching what they say and do about methane. But number two has to do with the money to deal with the whole kit and caboodle. It's always about the money, and rightly so. The usual sort of headbanging that goes on is developing countries complain about the injustice of it all because rich countries, let's admit it, uh, we created the problem. Most of the pollution that's in the air comes from industrialization and rich countries haven't coughed up the amount of money that has been promised in the past, let alone funding new things like a loss and damage fund that was agreed at the last COP in Egypt a year ago. We're talking about millions, up to $100 billion kind of funding that's been a source of great political debate. In fact, it's a bit of a sideshow because the amount of money that we're going to need to deal with the climate challenge is in the trillions of dollars. And the last point here, how fast to cut down fossil fuels that produce carbon? Or put another way, how fast to cut out fossil fuels, reduce the stuff or end it? Well, you, you put your finger right on the hot button issue. Is it going to be a phase down or a phase out of fossil fuels? Again, a lot of blood will be spilt in the hallways in Dubai at the convention center when negotiators, 198 countries have to agree this. In reality, the world gets about 80% of its energy today from fossil fuels. So the idea of getting rid of them tomorrow is really just a political point. The reality is we need to invest 
mostly from the private sector in those clean energy technologies and energy efficiency and technologies for removing emissions like negative emissions. That's how we're going to transform the energy system. There has to be some irony that such a big producer of fossil fuel, the UAE, is hosting this particular conference. It's a subject of great either laughter or terrifying nightmares, depending on your ideological point of view. And if it takes a Nixon goes to China moment, that is an unexpected political character to bring an unusual coalition together. And it might be the United Arab Emirates being a big oil producer that gets national oil companies to agree to you know, phase down their methane emissions. That might be the moment that we're looking for. Vijay Vaithaswaran is Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist magazine. Thank you for the help on this. Hey, it's been my pleasure. But the BBC has now obtained leaked documents showing that the host of the UN Climate Summit, the UAE, was planning to take advantage of some of the high-level visitors coming to town to discuss new oil and gas opportunities. Marketplace Morning Report podcast will have that later today if you missed the report on our air this morning. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Mostly sunny today. Temperatures will rise. The low 50s will also have some high winds. Tonight, around 30 and still windy. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. It'll only be in the upper 30s. It's 47 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is next. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.